This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King-Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. This episode is called CRISPR, COVID, and Pure Curiosity. My guests are biographer Walter Isaacson and science teacher Mike Jones. You might not know it, but we're in the middle of a revolution. Not a political revolution or even a digital revolution. We're in the middle of a biological revolution. It started about a billion years ago when bacteria began evolving to defend themselves against viruses. But the biological revolution really kicked into high gear when scientist Jennifer Doudna and her collaborator Emmanuel Charpentier discovered the structure and functions of that bacteria defense system, CRISPR-Cas9, and then realized it could be used to edit human genes. Since their initial discoveries in 2012, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier have won the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry, and CRISPR has been used to create innovative new treatments for everything from sickle cell anemia to the COVID vaccines. Walter Isaacson's amazing new book is The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. It chronicles the series of discoveries surrounding CRISPR and the brilliant scientists around the world racing to make those discoveries and to beat each other to publications, patents, and prizes. Walter Isaacson has made a career out of chronicling geniuses, from Leonardo da Vinci to Ada Lovelace to Steve Jobs. In The Codebreaker, we learn about Jennifer Doudna's life and research. The book is exciting and fast-paced. The science is fascinating and approachable. And because the book was recording history as it happened, The Codebreaker presents a first-hand account of how scientists used CRISPR technology to respond to the pandemic to create new vaccines and tests that are saving people's lives. We'll talk to Walter shortly, but first, for those of us who are several years outside of a biology classroom, what is CRISPR? CRISPR is a naturally occurring defense mechanism that evolved in bacteria. The acronym stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Let's bring in some experts to explain it. Hello, my name is Rain, and I'm in eighth grade. Hi, my name is Aiden Richardson, and I'm in eighth grade. Hi, I'm Lydia, and I'm in 8th grade. CRISPR is a technology that is capable of editing DNA to make changes. CRISPR uses a special protein that can be programmed to go anywhere in the genome, and this protein is called Cas9. Because of Cas9 structure, it is able to snip out pieces of DNA, and scientists can then swap out that original portion of DNA that was snipped out with a different portion of DNA, so when the DNA tries to repair itself, it repairs itself with the portion of DNA that the scientists provided. If I have brown eyes. You can use CRISPR to give me blue eyes or green eyes, and you can do this with other physical features you have, like your hair color. You can also cure diseases with it. For example, if you have cancer or sickle cell disease, you can use CRISPR to snip out pieces of the malfunctioning DNA and replace it with the proper ones. These changes could be limited to the organism that was edited or be passed down by that organism for generations. Those are 8th graders from the Thomas Medcalf School in Normal, Illinois. They spent six weeks studying CRISPR in Mike Jones's science class. They learned about the biology behind CRISPR, the people who discovered it, and the ways it can be used in humans, animals, and crops. 
The students even explored the medical ethics discussions surrounding its use. In the second half of the episode, we'll hear from Mike Jones and his students about how they explored CRISPR in class. But first, here's my interview with Walter Isaacson. Thank you again so much for being here. There's so much in this book and in your body of work that is worth exploring. So I want to talk first about your process. Why do you write biographies? I think that telling the stories of our time to the people who make them is a good narrative way to make sense out of all that's happening in the world. Of course, it's not something that's new. I mean, that's the way the Bible teaches us both moral lessons and, you know, the tales of how uh, we look at each other. I have uh, always found a biographical narrative to be a journey of discovery, which means I can, in the case of this book, The Codebreaker, go along hand in hand with Jennifer Doudna as uh, she uh, finds the joy of discovering how something works. And in this case, it's particularly interesting because that something is ourselves. And so, whether it was The Eighth Day of Creation, a book I loved when I was growing up, or of course, The Double Helix, this notion of people trying to discover things and doing it as you interweave the personalities involved with the science, that makes it both come alive. But I also think it's a good narrative way of showing how creativity happens and how discovery happens. So how do you choose your different subjects? I started uh, a while back looking at the great innovation revolutions and whether it was Ben Franklin with the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution, or then Albert Einstein, who at the beginning of the 20th century helped create the revolution in physics that brings us everything from the atom bomb to the microchip to space travel. And then I wanted to explore the information technology revolution, the digital revolution. I did that both through Steve Jobs and then a book, collective book that begins with Ada Lovelace called The Innovators. I think the next great innovation revolution, and it's hit us real clearly now that we're fighting the coronavirus pandemic, is the revolution in life sciences. And just as you know, the physics revolution was based on the atom and the digital revolution was based on the bit. This one is based on the gene and in specific uh, RNA and DNA and how we can manipulate molecules, use molecules as if they were microchips and code them to do the things we need to do. What Jennifer Doudna brings is the fact that when she was young, she read the double helix and said, okay, I wanna be a scientist. And her guidance counselor says, well, girls don't become scientists. And that of course made her want to. And she focuses on a molecule that was not as famous as DNA, but it's less famous sibling, RNA. And as we've seen recently, knowing how RNA works leads you to genetic editing, and it also has led us to the vaccines that'll get us out of this coronavirus pandemic. You said in the book that there's such a rich cast of characters in the CRISPR story. Why did Jennifer stand out to you in particular? Her narrative takes you through all aspects of not just CRISPR, but the whole notion of the biological revolution we're going to go through. She starts you know, with figuring out how certain types of RNA can replicate themselves. And she does it by understanding the shapes of RNA. And that's really cool. It also leads to the answer to the question, one of the great questions of this planet, which is how did life begin? 
and it begins with self-replicating RNA. And then because she was an expert in RNA, the people who had discovered this technology that bacteria use called CRISPR, which just means clustered, repeated clusters in their DNA, they use CRISPR to fight off viruses. Well, that's a pretty um, useful thing for us to understand these days. And she realized how you could use RNA to guide the cutting mechanism of CRISPR to edit our own genes. And then at a certain point after she's made this great discovery, which eventually wins the Nobel Prize for her and her partner, Emmanuel Charpentier, uh, they won the, the past year's prize for chemistry. She has a nightmare about Adolf Hitler summoning her to ask her about this technology. So she's the leader in looking internationally at what are we going to do to help find guidelines and ways to use this technology. So through her life and her work and her passions, it sort of gets the whole story from the basic science to the medical tools that are now we're using to help cure sickle cell anemia, and for that matter, edit embryos, and to the moral issues that come with it. So I found, and she's just a wonderful, delightful person, I found that she was a great central character to tell this tale. What links did you see between her and some of the other people you had done biographies of? Well, first of all, everybody who's creative tends to be curious, whether that's you know Leonardo da Vinci wondering why shells are shaped like spirals or what fossils are or why the sky is blue to Einstein wondering why the sky is blue and how radiation is diffracted. And Jennifer Doudna grew up in Hawaii, sort of a lanky, young, tall, blonde girl amid a small town in Hawaii where everybody else in her class were Polynesian. And she's curious just about people and the differences and the diversity in people. She's also curious about how living things work. Like why, when she touches the sleeping grass, does it curl up? And so that curiosity is true of everybody I've written about. And it is a trait that each one of us has. It's not like we're going to be Einstein and have this mathematical processing power, all of us. But we can be just as we can go outside this afternoon and sort of look at the sky and begin to puzzle why it's blue and maybe try to look it up to see why it's blue. So that curiosity, I would say, is trait number one. I also want to talk about, as you mentioned, this idea between the different phases of science that we've been through. Albert Einstein was the phase of physics and then we moved into an earlier biological phase in the phase of vaccines and you know the vaccine race between Sabin and Salk. And then we come into this computer revolution and then we get kind of a merging of the two in the CRISPR age, in the age of genetic coding. So where do you see that heading in the future? I think that now that we can code our molecules just like we can code our microchips, we'll be able, as we've done in the past eight months, to code messenger RNA to build proteins we want in our cells, which, by the way, is how the Pfizer uh, vaccine that I just took, that's how it works. It says build that spike, part of that spike protein of the coronavirus. Likewise, we'll be able to fight cancers with it because we'll be able to instruct our cells to turn off, say, the things that prevent our immune system from attacking cancer cells. 
We're going to be able to fix sickle cell anemia and other single gene mutations like Tay-Sachs or cystic fibrosis or Huntington's. And eventually we'll be able, and this is where we're going to have to pause and say, do we really want to go there? to uh, be able to edit the genes of our children so they won't be as susceptible to viruses, so they won't have genetic diseases, and perhaps they'll have enhancements if we decide to go that far. So that's the big moral question now that we're entering an age of biotech where we can really use the molecules of life and hack our own evolution if we want to. One of the things that I found really surprising in the book was the idea of these genetic hackers that are becoming makers in their houses and in their garages of their own genes and trying to inject their own vaccines. So was that surprising for you to discover? (laughs) Yeah, there's a wonderful guy named Josiah Zayner who's in the book. He's a biohacker. And he sort of pops up in the book the way Puck does in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, both as sort of the guy playing the fool, but who's actually wise and saying what fools these mortals be, but also pushing the envelope a bit with a little bit of humor, but also trying to engage in citizen science. So he's created his own DNA vaccine for the coronavirus, which he sent me. I did not actually inject it in myself, especially since I was in the Pfizer vaccine trial. But he's also used CRISPR to edit the gene that sort of uh, regulates muscle growth so that he could become more muscular. And this to me is a way of saying, all right, what's gonna happen when people push the envelope? And by the way, when we get up on a moral high horse and say, I'd never use that to make myself stronger or whatever, you need somebody who comes along and says, why not? Right. And I think he was a really interesting character in the book as well, because he's talking about the idea of bringing science into the hands of the people. And as we've seen in this crisis, it seems like people don't trust science, they don't understand science, and they don't see scientists as humans, right? You know, as as real people who are making these discoveries and trying to make the world better. How does your book respond to that anti-science current I think we're intimidated by things we don't fully understand or we think is mysterious. And whether that's, you know, nuclear power or genetic engineering or, you know, GMOs or whatever it may be, there's certainly good reasons to be wary of new technologies. But before you decide you're against GMOs, it's useful to know what a genetically modified organism is. And likewise with CRISPR, I think it's important because all of us are going to have to be involved Uh, and our children will have to be involved in making the moral judgments about this, it's useful to know what it really is. And the best way to know something is, how something, what something is, is, you know, I love the phrase, let me tell you a story. So I tell the story of how dedicated scientists were able to create vaccines by using RNA to tell ourselves what proteins to build, and they're able to use RNA to act uh, as a guide for scissors to try to edit our genes. And it's not that hard to understand. I mean, nature is beautiful, especially when it's nature about us. So I think demystifying science, I, I, I mean, you have a podcast that's for people interested in science, but I find it problematic when I run into people say, oh, I don't understand science or I don't like science. I mean, that's like saying I don't like poetry or I don't like movies or I don't like art or I don't, you know, like books. You you shouldn't be proud of not liking science. So I would hope that, you know, both with podcasts like yours and books like mine, we say, hey, 
let us show you the wonders and beauties of science. And then you can be more informed if you say, but let's not go there. Let's pause before we use it for this technology. Right. And I think it's interesting in your book also that you have a lot of examples of science fiction. So how do you see science fiction and science, the interplay between them? And what have you discovered about the scientists that you've interviewed and how science fiction has informed their work? <laughs> well, you know, all Fong Zhang, Jennifer Dowden and George Church, they all love Jurassic Park. And the thing about good science fiction is that some of it has already happened. It actually describes things that are in existence, including, you know, nowadays you look at a movie like Gattaca or read Brave New World, and then you find that there's a Chinese scientist who has used CRISPR in order to create designer babies that don't have a receptor for the HIV, the, the virus that causes AIDS. And you think, wow, that's science fiction and that's spooky. But in an age of viral pandemics, you might say, okay, but let me understand it a little bit better. I think science fiction helps push the envelope, but it also gives us some caution, whether we're reading Mary Shelley's, you know, Dr. Frankenstein, or we're reading Brave New World. The question is, do we want to use biology to create new creatures? Do we want to use biology to change our species? So our species may involve people who are genetically enhanced, like in Brave New World and Gattaca, and people who aren't. So science fiction can be uh, not only a spotlight into what's coming up, but also a caution to say, all right, think about these moral dilemmas. One of the great things about your book was the pace of it. It really is the type of book that you can't put down. People are racing for patents and for cures. So it's it's very exciting. But one of the most frustrating parts are these patent wars that the scientists are having. What do you see as the importance of this competition in science? And what do you think of this idea of a more open source science that people shifted to in order to face the pandemic? I think it was really good that people had been very competitive and seeking patents when they were doing things like gene editing technologies. When they threw themselves into the fight against coronavirus, they did it on open source uh, publications. And they said, we're not going to claim the intellectual property for those who want to use what we've just discovered in order to find ways to fight the coronavirus. That said, uh, unlike some people, I believe that patents and intellectual property in moderation have an important role to play in both funding and stimulating basic science research. I think scientists in my book are all engaged in this uh, journey of discovery, mainly because they find it beautiful and they want to be the ones who discover things first. But their labs are funded and they're rewarded by getting patents. So I try to tell the story, but say, look, it's not all binary. You know, having the ability to patent discoveries probably spurs discoveries. On the other hand, getting too involved in patent wars can be counterproductive. And that's all in the book. How did COVID change the way that you pictured the story? It seems like you were pretty far into finishing the book and then everything changes. Well, yeah, last year, things changed. And I had always thought that this new revolution 
in uh, biosciences and in using molecules to help improve our health. I thought it was exciting. I thought it had larger than life characters. I thought it had great competition and collaboration. By the time COVID comes along, I realized I was understating the case. It's even more exciting and more important than that. As we raced to find vaccines, for example, or detection technology using CRISPR to detect the new variants of this virus that come along. So it became a lot more relevant and important what I was writing about. I didn't have to explain to people why do I need to understand how our cells and how our genetic material work? Well, viruses understand it, bacteria understand it, And if we understand it, we're going to be able to fight viruses and bacteria more. And also, we're going to be able to create the type of tools we need. But mainly, it's because there's a joy in understanding how something works, especially when that something's ourselves. It's interesting. One of the points you made that, you know, the technology for the vaccine came through so quickly, but really it took a billion years of evolution. (laughs) So I I love that idea. Well, bacteria have been using it for a billion years and sometimes basic research, just puzzling over why do bacteria have clustered repeated sequences in their DNA? Nobody was doing that to make a gene editing tool or a way to use RNA to fight a virus, but they were just doing it out of curiosity, pure curiosity. And that's what, as I said, all my subjects share. And eventually curiosity might lead you to something useful. After years of studying genius in a lot of different spaces, what advice do you have for fostering it? Every kid, including every kid we teach and all of us when we were back in our wonder years, as a natural curiosity. We ask questions like, why is the sky blue? Or, you know, why does this piece of grass curl when you touch it? What actually is inside of it that makes it do that? And after a while, we sometimes outgrow our wonder years or we have our kids outgrow them by, we keep saying things like, oh, stop asking so many silly questions. Well, I think you always have to be open to wonder, especially about, The simple things like why does water spiral when it goes past a rock or goes down a drain? I mean, Leonardo puzzled over that for a long time. And so I guess my advice is always keep that natural sense of curiosity and ask the obvious questions about everyday ordinary things. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to spread the word about this amazing book. Thank you, Jillian. You just heard my interview with Walter Isaacson, author of Leonardo and Steve Jobs. His latest book is The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. One of the great things about this book is that Walter Isaacson shares the personal stories of the people behind the science. Many of the scientists who went on to make world-changing discoveries had great teachers and mentors who helped foster their curiosity. I was also fascinated by Walter Isaacson's idea that future students will learn genetic coding just like today's students learn computer coding. I wanted to see where we are with that, so I reached out to one of the most innovative teachers I know— 
Mike Jones. Mike is a 7th and 8th grade science teacher at the Thomas Medcalf School in Normal, Illinois. He's also the co-creator of several tech guides. Mike loves the potential next-generation science standards can bring to the classroom by empowering students through inquiry. And it just so happened that when I texted him about this episode, he was wrapping up a six-week unit on CRISPR. Here's my interview with Mike Jones. Hi, my name is Michael Jones. I teach 7th and 8th grade at Metcalf. Metcalf is a lab school for Illinois State University. You've been teaching CRISPR for a few years now. So tell us how that got started. This is about year five. We've always talked about GMOs and genetically modified organisms. Now with CRISPR, we haven't talked about just the what of genetic modifications, but we're getting into the mechanics and how it works and how it's actually manipulated and changed. CRISPR is a game changer, and I feel there's no way in my students' medical future when they start thinking about jobs or even their own health, that CRISPR won't be part of it in some way or fashion. How do you introduce students to something as complicated as CRISPR? I think there's a lot of parts in NGSS where you can almost like breadcrumb it, where you like throw in little tidbits to lead up to something bigger. We start uh, our year looking at is our food and water safe. And we examine drinking water and we examine like our food system, which gets us into GMOs. And there's a lot of misconceptions around what GMOs are, if there's health risk. From that, once they understand GMOs, we start getting into the mechanics like how did these things happen? How did we genetically modify things? And what have we done with selective breeding? One of our standards talks about knowing new technologies for genetic modifications. And CRISPR really fits that bill, really is the cutting edge of where science is at right now in biology. We also talk about protein synthesis, which talks about why we look the way we do and the traits that we have. And there's a standard that gets into how DNA is the information, but proteins are the actual physical stuff that makes us up. What is their initial reaction to CRISPR? A, a lot of confusion, a lot of more sci-fi than science. They almost wanted to do too much for things that we can't do quite yet. Like, so I can change my hair color with CRISPR and I can change, I can have an extra arm and think about how awesome I'd be at sports, right? So there's a great amount of curiosity. I think that's probably one of the most exciting things about teaching CRISPR is the excitement and the curiosity and all the why questions that happen. We'll get to the hows and the what's through CRISPR in our class, but really that initial phenomenon of like what CRISPR is gets them really curious. And then they start looking at almost the fear of CRISPR, uh, the fear of the unknown, and it's because they don't have a good grasp of it. You mean someone can change me and what's wrong with me? And it's almost with their own identity. They start questioning like, why would I want to change my kids? And would my parents want to change me? We start talking about with like with high risk, we want high benefits. So we're not looking at CRISPR just to make us taller. Or we're not looking at CRISPR just to give us a different color of eyes. But we're looking at CRISPR to save lives. And actually, once we even get out of the human body from medicines to crops, what other possibilities could CRISPR have? What's really interesting in the book, The Codebreaker, is you see all of these different types of scientists coming at the problem in different ways. So does that come into play in the way that you teach things? Absolutely. We look at it through several different lenses. We look at it through different sciences, all the way from the biology aspect to the ecology parts of it. But on our team, we actually bring in several of our other teachers to help the kids be immense in CRISPR. I partner with my ELA teacher and she does a really good job of teaching like how to research and what is fake news and how to communicate your point of view. We partner with our social studies department and they talk about policy and what is policy. So when the kids say, well, they need to regulate it. Who's they and what do they need to regulate? We're fortunate enough to have a really awesome instructional coach who helps us communicate across the team 
but also to other departments on the university where we can bring in guest speakers and make real world connections. How did this COVID year affect the way you teach CRISPR? When we talked about COVID and there's been a big push about getting us back to normal and normal teaching, but COVID's given us some new opportunities that we've never been able to have access to. Guest speakers has been fantastic to get in a COVID year. Everyone knows Zoom. We're not afraid of Zoom anymore. So by the time it would take a guest speaker to find a place to even park in our campus, 15 minutes, they can come in on a quick Zoom, talk real quick to our students and log off. There's a focus on so much of the material that they're consuming digitally. I think the fear of fake news and the teaching them to be skeptical on sources is even amplified this year. So maybe uncle on Facebook doesn't have the best information about CRISPR. So where do we go find CRISPR information and how do we teach our kids to be skeptical but and just diligent in their research? Right. And what a case study to have the vaccines coming out made uh, with CRISPR technology. What did the students think about that? It was exciting, not only just the research that was happening in it, but when we started talking about the vaccinations being RNA based, I had several students come in and say like, RNA, we're studying that right now. Is that different RNA? Is that the same RNA? And when we started talking about how our bodies were making different proteins because of the RNA injections, they were instantly making connections to what we've already taught in class. And it was a really great time to see the application happen instantly on something that was so critical. Yeah, science in action. Right. One of the ideas in the code breaker is that students need to learn not only coding, but also genetic coding. Do you see similarities between the way that they're taught and how do you see that playing out in the future? Absolutely. I think when we talk about coding, whether it's coding for a computer or coding uh, cells biology, I think what we're talking about is just, here's this information that I have. I want it to be communicated to this device to do this thing. I think when we can start talking about different abstract avenues for kids to be able to apply knowledge, it's a powerful thing. There's some great analogies to compare CRISPR to computer coding, but I think sometimes with computer coding, the payoff is I can make this game or I can do this process or I can improve the way I can communicate. Where really CRISPR, it can be life or death situations. We're dealing with saving sick people, hopefully, or making better medicines for diseases. I think you want to be able to show important concepts like this through a lot of different lenses. And while some students may feel like, well, I'm not a coder because I'm not good with technology, that student might find that hook, that connection to say, like, you know, with biology, man, I, I like biology. I like animals. I like medicine. I want to be a doctor. I like science. Uh, it's just another hook for the students to see how we can apply this knowledge, this learning. Have you talked to your students about Jennifer Doudna winning the Nobel Prize? Absolutely. We brought her up. It's actually great to be able to show women in science getting acknowledged for their hard work. Anytime through biology, we can make that connection is fantastic. And not just her, but even the different teams that were involved in the CRISPR research. Teaching cells and teaching biology, it seemed like we talk about a lot of uh, old white Europeans, it seems like, at times in science, whether we're talking about Hook or Leeuwenhoek. I want my students to be able to see different people in science making achievements so they can identify whether it's any kind of diversity issue. I want them to see potential that they can connect to. 
We've talked about that idea of having mentors in science before. So I, I think a lot of the things that separate some people or have separated people in the past is this ability to have strong mentorships and to have internships. How do you think that will be changing or maybe opportunities will be opening up now that we are in this Zoom culture? Being from rural Southern Illinois myself, I know growing up, it didn't seem like there was the opportunities coming up to the northern part of the state through Zoom, through digital tools. We're finding out you don't always have to be in that office space to have those connections, to have that mentorship. People who are passionate about a subject can find other people who are expertise in the field. I'm really excited to see maybe where students get more of an agency in their learning, where the teacher can really kind of step back and maybe make some facilitation roles of connecting people who are interested, high interest. We're fortunate to have an instructional coach. We're fortunate to have the staff and the manpower to help facilitate these kind of connections. I think it's where the schools need to put their values, where when we value something, we put money behind it, we put time behind it, resources to make those connections. So even though they may not be in the backyard of Argonne or Fermi, we can still find and reach those connections digitally. Yeah. So at the end of the unit, what did students come away with? What do you think their impression of CRISPR was? How did it change from beginning to end? One thing is they understand more about GMOs. They understand about the process of how CRISPR works. They understand how a little bit more about how our body works. I think one of the wins is, though, this scientific literacy that they're starting to develop, whether it's looking at sources or interpreting other people's data, just becoming skeptic of, like, we're living in a world right now where people don't believe masks and handwashing can help stop COVID. I know my students are leaving me with a little bit more understanding of how science works and, and how to be skeptical, but also being safe. The real world application pieces of it is we studied something that's a difficult process. And as eighth graders, they were able to interpret that information in a way that was meaningful for them, help them make meaningful connections across science. I think there's also a stage of advocacy where, where they spoke out and they are starting to form their own personal beliefs. Is CRISPR something that they are less fearful of? Is CRISPR something that they're supporting? Alleviating the fears and, and saying what CRISPR is and what it isn't. With high risk, we want high reward. So it's not just to change people lovey-dovey. It's for a purpose of saving lives. You just heard my interview with Mike Jones. Now let's return to those students who spent six weeks studying CRISPR in Mike Jones's class. Hi, my name is Aiden Richardson, and I'm in eighth grade. The first thing that went through my head was Jurassic Park. I myself am a huge movie nerd, and when I heard that there was a system that could edit the human genome, I was kind of scared of how these possibilities could be used for bad things like bioweapons or super soldiers. And although it's kind of scary, CRISPR has a huge potential to make a difference in society for the better. I would probably use it to eliminate cancer altogether. Then according to cancer.gov, apparently in 2018, there were 9.5 million cancer-related deaths worldwide. And in the future, it is expected to rise significantly. You have every right to be concerned about where the development of CRISPR is headed. However, this does not mean that we should ban it. I think if we were to use CRISPR in the medical field, we could help treat many people and uh, could possibly cure the uncurable diseases. Hello, my name is Rain and I'm in eighth grade. When I first heard about CRISPR, I was kind of surprised because it sounds really futuristic, like something out of a dystopian novel. But then I got 
pretty excited because that means that we could solve certain problems and cure diseases that would end a lot of suffering in humans. In agriculture, you can make crops weather resistant, so you can grow them anywhere no matter what the seasons are like. You can make crops more nutritious. To make more biofuels, you can use algae, but right now use the fat of them, and it's hard to produce that. So you can use CRISPR to make the algae produce twice as much fat to make twice as much biofuel. I would also want to work on the climate because it's kind of a ticking clock on that. I am Elijah, and I'm in 8th grade. The shocking thing for me was that you could change the eye color and hair color of people. If I could change something, I would change my height so I could be taller, even taller than I am now. What advice do I have for people that are scared of the technology? I would say don't be scared. They can't just test on humans unethically. Hi, I'm Lydia, and I'm in 8th grade. When I first heard of CRISPR, I was really interested but also a bit nervous. I think it's cool and good that we can edit crops to be more effective. When hearing it could be used specifically for cosmetic purposes, such as changing eye and hair color, I definitely got a bit nervous about the potential of CRISPR. If I could change something with CRISPR, I would develop a cure for cancer. Cancer has affected my family and I a lot, and it affects many other people too. It's a hard disease to watch unfold, and to think of a world without it is amazing. My name is Arissa, and I'm in 8th grade. I was kind of surprised that CRISPR is more than just black and white, meaning it isn't just straightforward. I feel like there were many great areas that overlapped each other, actually. For example, it was hard to find where gene therapy ended and gene enhancement started. There were questions that led to one another, like, if we shouldn't use CRISPR for humans, what about animals and which animals? There were also so many ways to address CRISPR, like policy-wise, therapeutic-wise, agriculture-wise. CRISPR itself is not bad. It just depends on how people decide to use it. So it's okay to be wary with new technology, but I'm sure CRISPR has a lot more benefits than problems. Those were students from Mike Jones's 8th grade science class at the Thomas Medcalf School in Normal, Illinois. One of the great things about curious people is that their curiosity is infectious. Whether it's a middle school science teacher empowering students to ask their own questions, a scientist puzzling over the structure and function of RNA, or a biographer seeking to understand the nature of genius, curiosity is a driver of innovation. If you're curious about the CRISPR-created vaccine that's going to go into your arm, read The Codebreaker and find out more about Jennifer Doudna and the scientists who made the technology possible. Ask questions like Mike Jones's students. Evaluate your sources. Be skeptical. Get the facts from real books instead of Facebook. Then get vaccinated and rejoice in the fact that a billion years of evolution and hundreds of years of scientific inquiry and vaccine research have helped make you and the world safer. Thanks to my guests, Walter Isaacson and Mike Jones, and a special thanks to the students of Medcalf School who took the time to tell us what they think about CRISPR. You can learn more about our guests and their work in the show notes at WNIJ.org or at stemread.com. If you like exploring the connections between science and fiction, check out the Future Telling series. These web shows are a collaboration between STEM Read and Northern Illinois University Libraries. 
Go to go.niu.edu slash futuretelling to find our past episodes with authors like Mary Robinette Kowal, Maurice Broadus, M.T. Anderson, S.L. Huang, Daniel Krauss, Patrick Tomlinson, Joelle Charbonneau, and Aaron Starmer, as well as editor Lynn M. Thomas and experts from NIU, Fermilab, and Argonne National Lab. Our 2021 Future Telling web series kicks off Wednesday, April 21st, as we explore ways to future-proof the planet. Our guests for April are meteorologist and climatologist Victor Gensini, mechanical engineer John Shelton, and best-selling author of Annihilation, Born, Dead Astronauts, and other weird, awesome books, Jeff Vandermeer. Free registration is coming soon at go.niu.edu slash futuretelling. This is the STEM Read Podcast. The STEM Read Podcast is produced in association with WNIJ. Support for the STEM Read Podcast comes from NIU STEAM and Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. Thanks for listening.